Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to another edition of the Odd Job Pod. And if you are one of our younger listeners who's just uh, joined us and discovering us for the first time, put your coat on and I'll go and buy you an ice cream. So, um, yes, we are indeed mid-more of our Moor Marathon. Um, We've gone over Pete Roger. And we are now most definitely into, I'm not even sure what you'd call it, aging Roger? Is that a little bit harsh? Maybe not. We're, we're into the latter end of, um, of the Moore era. And some might say a point which potentially should have come a little bit earlier than it did. But hey, then we wouldn't have got the glory that was an unhinged Christopher Walken or Octopussy either. But what we do have on this podcast is a film that potentially might be a little bit maligned. It follows one of the probably, let's be fair, even from my esteemed host would say it has one of the more ludicrous entries into the canon with Moonraker, albeit one that I changed my view on in the last podcast a little bit. Of course, let's bring in the rest of the pod. Um, Terry DeFallon and Graham Sibley, how are you gentlemen? Oh, very well and, and absolutely delighted that you've managed to uh, address the issues, uh, uh, Moonraker related issues from last time, which, which are, as you may recall, weren't entirely down to Moonraker. But let's, you know, let's, let's, let's put that in the past and well, move on. And grow. I, I, and and I'm just uh, looking to see what we can unearth from our past uh, with, with with this uh, with this episode. It's, uh, it it I think I feel like we're going to start another journey here. <laughs> I, you know what? Um, I can't ever recall my dad giving an opinion on for for your eyes only, um, which, to be fair, I think would probably come with a lot of people who um, you know have a passing interest in Bond. Um, maybe uh, slightly unfairly that they they may have few opinions. But gentlemen, are you ready with your hot takes on this? Because I'm pretty sure you've got opinions on this film. Oh, yes. Opinions and feelings, Gary. Opinions and feelings, yeah. Yeah. Graham, you are you ready with your feelings as well? Oh yes, yes, I, I, I am. It's it it is uh, it has given me memories. So it's uh, and, uh, and and yeah and and also as well I've I'm seeing it in a new light. I'll put it that way. But uh, let's start. Yes. Well, <laughs> well. I, so you talk about new light. So I'm going to come in, and I don't normally do this. Normally we kind of have a little bit of a build up, and we kind of you know soften around the edges, and then one of us will come in with a hard hitting opinion, or bring up long related father issues, or any other means that that we do on there. But I'm going to come straight out and say it that having sat down and watched this film a couple of days ago, and it's not a Bond film that I think I return to that often, I came away and went, you know what? Looking at this, knowing I've got to do a podcast, I really enjoyed it. I have a lot of problems with it. Um, there are a lot of things that are not very, not quite right with the film. But actually, it's probably out of all the films that we've discussed on the podcast, even more so than Moonraker, I think it's a film that I have really reassessed my opinion on um and graham it's not <clears throat> necessarily going to be a film that i think would top many people's lists on bond or perhaps not even get into the top 10 but do you have the same kind of feeling from me that, that this is actually quite an enjoyable film or am i uh, have i suddenly the the roles reversed and you're going to sat there going Christ, he can't stand Moonraker, and now he's bloody well going on about how good a film For Your Eyes Only is. <laughs> well, I I think I've always had a, a 
an inkling in my in my head that that um, that for your eyes only is the contrarians Roger Moore film. It's it's the one that 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 uh, it's the hipster's choice for for if you say well if you must watch a Roger Moore film then we'll just watch for your eyes only because it's the only decent one out of the whole lot of them, and I I I, I don't know of of anyone who actually has that opinion but I just suspect that somewhere if I really searched on Twitter I could find someone who would who would say those words because you know if you search hard enough on Twitter you'll find anyone to say anything really won't you. <laughs> Uh, Terry, wh- where where would you kind of come in on this film? You know, we obviously know how much that you know you love um, the spy who loved me, how much you love Moonraker, and we'll obviously come to the point that this was um, a very deliberate attempt by the film producers to try and take it um, back down to at least something approaching reality, or as near as you can approach reality for a James Bond film. Um, is this a film that, that has much affection in your heart? Um, yes, uh, of course. Um, I mean, I, I, it's a film that I went to see uh, still very much as a child, albeit at early teens, um, at the cinema and and have very fond memories of it. Um, I, I mean, just picking up on, on, on what Graham was saying, it's, it certainly is if you're, if you're a Fleming Bond fan, then the likelihood is is that this movie will appeal to your tastes more than say the more sort of like florid sort of like predecessors like Spy Who Loved Me and and Moonraker. Um, but uh, I mean, it, it, it's not that it's not without its ambitious stunt work, um, which I find a bit jarring. But I, I watched it twice actually in the last seven days uh, in preparation for this. Um, the first time, I actually. Uh, it is funny when you're reassessing for this podcast because you, you, you do you actively try and wipe your previous opinions about this movie away, you know, to try and watch it with a blank slate, so to speak, as much as possible. It's not it's not possible to completely do it. And I really enjoyed watching it the first time. And and and, and although there are bits in it that are not good, it was a it was a much more enjoyable experience. And I'm I think far more kindly towards it now than I have done. Uh, in the past and will in all likelihood return to it more often as a consequence. Yeah, Graham, is, is this, you know, would you be able to watch it twice in a week? Um, I mean, obviously there's films that you could barely watch once in a week, like Die Another Day. Um, and we obviously won't go into my issues with that one as well. But um, is this a Bond film that actually stands up to, to repeat viewing? Well, I have to admit, it, this is obviously a film I own. I own all of the the, the Bond films on DVD, but it, it it's it's one I very very rarely go to. I, I when I open up the the DVD box this week, I did wonder how many times have I opened this box? Have I just watched it once to get it out of the cellophane? Is is this have I? And I couldn't honestly say that I'd watched it that often. And obviously, it's a film that over the forty odd years it's been it, 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 since it was made, I have watched. I actually watched this film. They actually showed this on the last day of school in nineteen eighty two. Uh, so I actually watched it there, which was which was brilliant. Um, yeah, it's not a film that I I tend to go back to. I did watch it recently, and not only because we were um, going to talk about it here, but uh, because as part of my lockdown part of my, mine and my wife's lock, lockdown we we've decided to go through all of the the james bond films to watch them in order 
So yes, uh, Die Another Day is going to be watched. I think we we just watched Goldeneye the other night, so I've got another two films, and then I've got to rewatch Die Another Day, which I am pretty sure. Even though, why do I own that film? <laughs> why do I own it? Is that, this is this is the, the the inner voice inside me that hates being a completist. <laughs> that I've got to own it because I can't have a gap on the shelf. Um, uh, but yes, I will sit down and I will devote two more hours of my life to that film <laughs> for some reason. Uh, but actually doing that and sitting down and sitting down and watching them all in order has made me not entirely reappraise films. I'm, I'm, a lot of it has really enforced a lot of the opinions I've, I've had on them. But sitting down and and having to rewatch uh, Fiora's Only has led me to the same position I think as Terry is the fact that I have reassessed it and I've I've seen it as a film that yeah I can go back to and I can there are things in there that I've forgotten how much I enjoyed in there um because it, the thing about the film is it is clunky there is no two ways about it when you compare it when we had our discussion last time about Moonraker and and we said about it it being a film that you you may not get along with but it there is nothing about it that is bad there is nothing about it in the in the production side of it and on this side yes you say it's a scale back more sort of gritty uh fleming style bond film uh but everything is scaled back and and you can tell in the in the production of it you can tell that 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 it's it's a lot of guys' first day on the job. This film, this is Michael Wilson's first uh, screenplay. This is John Glenn's first direction. This and you can tell a lot of the talent that has been on previous Bonds is gone, and we're now into a, moving into a new era. These 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 films and and having said having watched the five films between of the eighties this week, well last week watching Fiora's Only and then watching all the way through to Licence to Kill, which were all done by the same writing and director team. You can see a little evolution of style and of things tightening up and loosening off as well. And But there is never that sense of ambition you get in earlier Bonds or in later Bonds as well. So it, there is something slightly disappointing about all those 80s films. And I think Fiora's Only really does set the pattern for what happens in the next four films. Well, it's, <clears throat> it's interesting that you actually bring in the Dalton ones and, and the fact that by then you, you've obviously got the team, you know, to a certain extent hit their stride. And, you know, I, I'm sure this will be one that we can go back to on another pod. And <clears throat> I've discussed before, but I've got a very big love for License to Kill. I think it's uh, probably up there with one of my my kind of favorites and that almost feels like that was when the team hit hit their kind of peak but one thing that really struck me watching this particular film um was that i could quite easily have seen timothy dalton in this one and with a slightly different type of script and there's some elements of of this film that could only be done by roger and i think you know we've mentioned this in the past where you can 
take a lot of the bonds and you can interchange them a little bit. And it's not too hard to imagine, you know, say Connery doing GoldenEye or, or even Brosnan having a go at one of the Craig films. But most of the time, you couldn't see any of the other bonds really taking on a lot of the more films. This one, the more I watched it, the more I went, if they, they kind of had picked the script up a little bit, they changed it a bit. Actually, this feels like it would have been a very good vehicle for Dalton. Um, as it is, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, it, it still is a very enjoyable film. But, um, Terry, do you, I mean, can you see kind of see you mentioned the, the Fleming nature of it? And obviously Dalton was very much a, a kind of idea of trying to return to a little bit more of, of kind of those Flemingish roots. Um, you know, how would you have found it if, if this had been, say, rather than um, more Roger Moore's uh, another outing for him? This had been a Dalton film or even potentially um, one of the names that was was mentioned um, that nearly replaced more of Lewis Collins in there. Yeah, I think I probably at the time would have been disappointed uh, because uh, at the, uh, at the, this was the third James Bond film that I saw at the cinema. And by this point, I was gripped with James Bond fandom. Um, and, and probably entering that sort of obsessive period of, uh, of James Bond fandom, which hopefully will end sometime in the next few years. Um, uh, but once I've worked my way through this, this podcast out of my system and I've rinsed it all out of me, but, um, I, I think that I was still very much for me, I was still wedded to the idea of Roger Moore's as James Bond and might have been disappointed. Although, I mean, I, I feel certain that the film would have been extremely enjoyable uh, with um, Lewis Collins. And and there is a, a lovely sort of like counterfactual possibility of, of Lewis Collins becoming um, James Bond off the back of the professionals. And, and that would have been awesome. And he would have been awesome. Um, but as it is, I, I enjoy Roger's turn in this. Uh, I mean, I, I, acknowledging, of course, that the, the fact that he does, he is visibly older uh, in this movie by comparison to, to Moonraker. Um, and, and, but I also think that um, I think that the environment with which he is working, that is, you know, uh, in Cortina amongst the snow, where he's extremely comfortable as a human being, Roger Moore. But I think as James Bond, I'm not certain that he looks entirely comfortable. I'm not certain that the outfitting was quite appropriate for Roger Moore. Uh, too many layers to my mind. Um, and also, unfortunately, you know, in the, uh, in, in, in the underwater scenes as well, I mean, I, where, where I, I, I'm not certain that these are areas that, that Roger really works terribly well in. And, um, because largely because I think of, of his age and he's, he was never the most mobile James Bond. I mean, he doesn't have the kind of, um, uh, fight, fighting skills, you know, the, the, the choreography skills, I should say um of 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 his predecessor um and anyone since then and, and i think that 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 shows through um, but but i mean in, yeah i mean in summary i i would have you know i i really enjoyed this movie when it came out and and i mean i do i do enjoy roger's turning it yeah i mean <clears throat> graham there's there's a lot to enjoy and, and i certainly enjoy um you know roger's turn in it as well and i think you know there's there's a lot of kind of sparkle that's in there but if i was going to pick up on on probably the first big problematic bit about this film is moore's age and then the women who are cast opposite him um i think that's 
possibly one of the the bits that no matter how many times you watch it you can't get over the fact that um there was a massive age gap between um roger moore and um carol bouquet and um then uh, we'll probably keep bb dial to, to one side um which, as roger moore did within the film as well um but yeah i mean graham for me that that's probably one of the most problematic bits and it, it's where you kind of start to see that for me those um those wears around the edges of the later moors coming in yeah it, it is it, it is quite alarming actually when because as i said looking at the, the 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 films one after another and you see he does visibly age within the space of about two years i don't i don't know what actually happened in his life or or something like that but there, there does seem to have been a a he does look a lot older than he does in Moonraker. But uh, I think as well, it is, you've got to look at the fact that, okay, I think that they were probably looking to replace Moore at this stage, but they didn't. Uh, and so they've got him. So if you've got him, then surely you've got to try and tailor the story around the fact that you've got an older guy playing Bond, or you just completely ignore it. Uh films used to be like this films used to have much older guys going after much younger women you look at audrey hepburn's uh canon there you've got some of her biggest films have her have her romantic lead being played by william holden or fred astaire and these are guys that are clearly twice her age where she looks like about 17 and he looks well into his 50s um and and they are look they look very uncomfortable and it looks like this is a film that hasn't really moved out of that time where where you know with that isn't really acceptable anymore and i think as well it's it, there's a spotlight shone on him because when bb does make make advances on him then there is this whole thing of of interplay of like well this isn't this this is inappropriate even though you know oh, I'll sort that <laughs> keep the pretense of it anyway going for a little while when you've got this aging bond, then surely you should cast the other characters appropriately. And really, that that the whole baby um, subplot, they, there's no need for it there in the film. I don't think anyway. Is there is there anything where it, there is something about it that that that, that turns it, it, it back into what's actually going on there? The stories themselves are. Uh, the, the the reason why the whole film has a Fleming feel about it is because the uh, the, the the stories actually do follow the uh, the, the Fleming tales reasonably closely. It, the, there is a there is a reasonable uh, crossover with two short stories in the book for your eyes only. Uh, but I don't remember that. I don't think the baby <laughs> subplot is in there at all. I don't think she she is mentioned as a character, uh, and so I don't know why she's actually there, uh, and she doesn't need to be there. Uh, and I suppose really with Carol uh, Bouquet, you, you've you've got you perhaps need someone who isn't uh, isn't that old because you see her parents getting gunned down, and therefore she she does need to be perhaps early 20s tops 
but yeah, you're right. It, yeah. it still doesn't get you away from this from this from this age age difference, and and there are better ways of handling it. And I think that's that that's part of the problem there with the inexperienced team. They don't know how to how to handle it really. And I think that's that there are things that when I was watching this, there are things where I was looking at it and thinking, yeah, a better filmmaker would have done that differently. Every state, uh, and that happens a lot through this film, uh, mm. and that and that's a shame because. And when we we're, we're thinking about how it, it's easy to forgive those things in this film, and yet when we're talking about Moonraker, where in which you know it's slick all the way through, you don't get that that clunky dialogue in there. Or you could, the little few quips are, but <laughs> you that one is 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 for me is is done fine. All right. It's ludicrous, but it's fine. In this one, it's not. The the, the things the things that, that 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 drag it down are are the are are the things. It, well, it's the clunky nature of it. The the fact of we're going from one scene, and we've really got to try and get it into another one quickly. How, how do we do this? Uh, how are we going to go about this? And and yeah, that, that for me is is the thing that. As a Bond fan, I, I can I can smooth over. But if you're trying to introduce someone to Bond with this film and say, "Oh yeah, this is this is a this is a this is a good one," then I think they would get completely lost on it. Yeah, <clears throat> I mean, I think the um, it's kind of interesting what you you picked up in there in a few bits, and one it actually is another bit that that I kind of pick up as a as an issue that I've got with the film, despite I enjoying it a lot. And, you know, obviously you mentioned the age gap between Moore and, and Carol Bouquet. And um, I think that kind of shows in the fact that I think uh, with probably the exception of a view to a kill, this feels like it's one of the the partnerships of the Moore era that has one of the least sets of chemistry. And, you know, admittedly, some of the the actresses aren't brilliant um, as 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 kind of actors and, and you know there's there's flaws in there we've talked about the fact in spy he loved me that barbara back is not the best actor but there is a chemistry in there and there's a believability to it and actually they work really well together whereas here it just feels a bit it just feels a bit like it, there's there's no nothing in there at all and there's, there's not a kind of spark and it would actually make perfect sense if at the end of it bond didn't get his leg over and actually that would be perfectly logical whereas the bit that i really find myself crying out for a lot more is that there's three characters who have fantastic chemistry and it's probably not a surprise given respective backgrounds and um and and sort of you know who they are but roger moore does have some very good chemistry with julian glover who is obviously you know, nobody's favorite Bond villain and and probably undercooked again in here. But there's good chemistry when they do get together. And then you've also got um, Topple as Miles um, Colombo. And there's great chemistry there. And I just really found myself really, really wanting to see more of more Glover and Topple together on screen um, because Topple and, and, and 
uh, you know, Columbo and Christatus barely share any screen time at all. And you find yourself crying out for the fact that, you know, you could have a wonderful um, double hander here, like all kind of mutual loathing like you've got in the living daylight with, with Pushkin and, and Koskov in there who actually do work really well. And you get a kind of sense of that relationship. Whereas here you just feel you've got two very charismatic actors who just need to be together more on screen and more would bring out the best in them. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I understand what you're saying. I mean, I thought that the the the. My favourite scene, one of my favourite scenes in the movie, is is when we is when James Bond is introduced to Columbo. I think that that scene on on, on his yacht is is absolutely superb. The chemistry is instantly there. The top is such an engaging actor, you know, such an engaging character, and I just love that whole sequence where. You know, Columbo trusts Bond with his with it with his PPK and 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 uh, you know my heart not so heavy for my bodies. Um, but um, I mean, uh, I mean, I think we should probably also uh, give a nod to Liesl as well as one of the other Bond characters, Bond girls in this movie that makes a a, 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 a grisly end. Um, and I, I mean, I agree to a point. What you say that that would have been great if there'd been more. Um, more screen time, say between the three, between you know uh, Glover, um, uh, Moore, and Topol. Um, but all that said, I mean, if you if you use the comparison between Pushkin and Koskov, there was very little screen time between those two in that movie as well, and 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 it worked, that it, it, it still worked out. So I suspect that if they, yeah, again going back to what Graham said, if they'd been a little bit more skillful. Um, with the time that they did have, then they they might have got away with it a bit more. Those that sequence in the casino, that whole scene in the casino is a little bit, it's a little bit off off beat. It feels a little bit uncomfortable, which is odd because it's a casino scene, and you'd think that you know James Bond was effectively born in a casino. I mean, it, it, it's it, it's it's an odd that it's a little bit sort of like jarring. Much like the whole movie, I guess. I mean, like Melina turns up in that casino and nobody quite understands why she's there. Um, the restaurant scene is fun um, and you've got the hint of some kind of chemistry, that kind of two feuding former old friends who, who know each other intimately and now can barely speak to each other. And, and, and you've got a hint of that, but not i think enough really to convey to a to an audience so i mean i i do get what you're saying if i could just quickly return to carol bouquet i i did actually develop a a, a quite a, a fondness for for melina havelock uh and i did um i actually did enjoy the moments that they had together i thought actually roger moore and carol bouquet actually did work together quite well but not romantically more as you know two people who have been brought together by circumstances and were you know forming a a, a close bond that, and i never felt any kind of uh, of, of sort of like um sexual uh chemistry uh, uh between them at all and, and and at the end of the movie when they finally get it together it just seems like it was almost like so well we really have to do this because this is what happens at the end of james bond movie so so actually on reflection it might have worked better um, if they had just sort of like skipped that part uh, at the end of it um as regards to bb dahl yeah i mean i think the purpose of her was to make christatos look like some sexual groomer 
but I don't think that they had the courage or the skill to actually see that through, and it just looked a bit stupid. And I don't think that she served any other purpose beyond to be a moderate, a modest sort of like ally right at the very end of the movie. So, so I think that that's again poured down to inexperienced movie making. I think the idea was Chris Darcy was supposed to be a lot slippery, a lot more greasy, a lot more kind of icky. But I don't think that they had the courage really or the skill to to, to portray him as that. Um, and uh, and I think that actually I say that's a shame. I'm not sure it is a shame actually. I don't. I think my I don't like my Bond villains to be quite like to be that realistic. If you take my meaning. Mm-hmm. I mean, Graham, <clears throat> this kind of what Terry said almost feels like it, it. It comes back to what you were saying about just that unevenness and and the team still feeling their way. Yeah, yeah, but there are things that 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 they do in this that that they do throughout the 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 five films that that the that the writers and directors uh, work, work work on up to License to Kill. The end scene where 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 BB is sort of like paired up with with Colombo in the in the sort of like like that the happy ending bit. It's exactly the same. He's exactly the same as the happy endingy bit with uh, in uh, in License to Kill, where the where the uh, where the dodgy president gets 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 set up with with uh, <laughs> with Sanchez's girlfriend, isn't it? It's like oh, what's what's this? And, and 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 I think that comes from from uh, from Maybaum, the 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 the, write, the writing partner of, of Wilson, whose whose films go back to the nineteen thirties. It's a sort of like Judy Garland, Mickey Rooney style, style ending of things. Uh, <laughs> It is just, and it's it just a whole clunkiness of of uh, of those sort of things. And and I I I don't like to use the word clunkiness because it it, it means it that I think this is bad film. I don't think this is a bad film. I think it's just it. I I just look at it and see how it could have been made better. And I think, and I think when 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 other other when. We we talk a lot about how the, the 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 things going on in the background. We haven't even talked about the opening credit sequence yet and the meaning behind it. Oh, yeah. we, 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 we are we will. We yeah, will. well, I'm sure we will now. <laughs> but and and the whole sort of things that were going on in the background. But you you've got a feeling that the the the, the whole franchise was was vulnerable at the time it, it, this is this is obviously broccoli on his own without Saltzman now and it, and it's it's basically his franchise and about obviously with Wilson Tate taking over his broccoli steps on and it's and you've got a feeling that it's he's handing things over so it is vulnerable and it's no wonder that by the time the 90s come around and and the whole action uh, action adventure things action adventure blockbuster comes comes into being that Bond is somehow left behind, and I think this is the era where that happens. Yeah, I think that yeah, it, it, that's interesting. I, 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 it's, I think it was an interesting choice for them after having really pushed the boat out with Moonraker to then nail it down and clearly make some sort of like budgetary decisions. And maybe again, this was due to uh, you know a lack of uh, a, a lack of confidence because there was some changing of the guards. I mean, it. it I, you say that the franchise was like, like lacking in confidence, or you know, you infer that, Graham. It's really odd because I mean, like that seems to have been a, a, a refrain since the end of Man with the Golden Gun was yeah. that, that there is this sort of like sense of crisis about the franchise during this period. I mean, Spy Who Loved Me very much rescued the franchise. It may well have been that, despite our correct opinions about how good Moonraker was, that it might have been perceived as being a little bit too far. 
Um, and then they think, well, we need to sort of like, you know, rein things back in again. And, and, and this is a far more austere James Bond adventure, despite the fact that it does have um, some extremely impressive stunt work in it and action sequences, oh, particularly yeah. in the early part. Of the film. Yeah. Oh, don't get me wrong. This, this film makes a stink load of cash. This, this, mm. this, this film is a, is a, a big success. Um, and it is perhaps the most successful film out of the ones in the eighties. There is a decline in the amount of money that they get back from from their their investment in all this film. It, it lifts up a bit when when Dalton takes over because it gets a bit of a reboot. But yeah, I mean these these films, all right, they 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 were they were all pretty much made on a budget. Um, but they make multitudes of that back, and. While while this is a scaled back version, it's certainly scaled back in its ambition as far as when you compare it to, to Moonraker. And I think that's why, because it sits right next to Moonraker, it always gets that that sort of that feeling of, of someone's of, of you're looking back on it and saying, Well, actually this is this is this is really just a stripping back of, of the whole fra- fra- franchise, isn't it? But I think it cost about the same as Moonraker to make. So it's not as if they've 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 actually cut corners here to to try and keep get gritty and real, uh, but I think we also see in the eighties with there was a big fear that a video, and this this comes just before video really kicks off, but by the time uh, Octopussy comes comes around, then there is this whole fear that within the movie industry that the video is going to kill everything video is going to kill cinema and it's the way the films are made is going to have to change radically and and in a way it does but i mean not in the way that was perhaps feared at the time and i wonder if 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 part of of the direction of the of the franchise at the time was something to do with the fact that that they didn't really know which way the future was going to go well, I mean, I want, it, this is a slight aside, but um, I, for one, am very glad that they took some decisions to pair it back because otherwise, Terry, we would have never have got the Citroen 2CV chase. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is, I mean, this is one of the really more, the more interesting things about this movie as well. And that, and I would pair it also with the ski chase and with the, the pre-credit sequence as well, is that they're extremely well-engineered it's a bit of undercranking in the TCV chase, which is a little bit, <laughs> little, little, just a little, just you know that that's a bit jarring. But I think you can forgive it because it was 1981. Um, th- these are these movies. These sorry, these sequences for me are somewhat out of character with what the the film is trying to achieve. I think um, it, once the film starts to take itself seriously, it becomes a much better film. But in the early part of the of, of the film, it's got. It's got these very humorous um, but extremely extravagant sort of like chase sequences or action sequences. I mean, and the 2CV obviously is the is the big one. Now, I'm working on the assumption that that probably Eon got some money in from the French government to work in a car chase because because the cars chasing the 2CV were were, were really average looking Peugeots. Um, and it. it <laughs> It's, so I can only assume that some maybe some money came in there or something like that. Uh, I mean, it was if you remember Graham. I don't know Gary what you remember from from you know. I mean, you probably weren't around. So um, the two C. I had a little matchbox toy of the two CV, 
uh, with pop marks from bullet holes and stuff like that, and and uh, and, the, and it was a massive merchandising gimmick that two CV, and it was an extremely um, entertaining um, chase. But I must confess, my my overriding memory at the time was that I saw him pulling up in that new Lotus Esprit Turbo, and I thought. Yes, there's going to be a car chase. And I was so excited, even though I knew about the bloody 2CV. But I just kind of thought, well, maybe that will happen later on. You know, and and it didn't. And uh, they ended up blowing up the Esprit and then, like, getting into this crappy Citroen. And, and I and I, <laughs> I still resent that for, to this day because, you know, I'm a, I'm a petty man. Um, but, I, I mean, it is, it is a good, it is a really, really good, well-done, well-choreographed scene. But... It is somewhat, I think, out of character for what the movie is trying to actually achieve. Mm. Well, okay, let, let's wind it back and let's pick that, <clears throat> that bit that we alluded to, and I think we've been skirting around a little bit. And, and Graham, I know that we've, we've said in the past as well that, um, you know, you can almost, the pre-credit sequence really sets the scene for what type of bond you are going to get. And in Moonraker, it was beyond ludicrous. Um, the Spy Who Loved Me, obviously, you just went, wow, we're in for something brilliant. And here, um, uh, I'd probably, I'll quote the, the great philosopher of the Simpsons comic book guy of worst opening credits ever. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, uh, yeah, I, 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 I'm struggling to think now. Once you say that, it's a challenge, and you think, "Oh, come on, there's got to be a worse one. There has to be." But no, this this one is is pretty. It's odd, isn't it? It 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 is weird. Where you've got 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 Blofeld in his remote control uh, uh, helicopter, and um... he's not Blofeld. He's not Blofeld. You can't say that. <laughs> oh no, no, no. Um, yeah. A named man with cat. Yeah, <laughs> Fofeld. That's. <laughs> <laughs> excellent <laughs> so yeah well thank you Tick. <laughs> um yeah so you've got you've got Fofelt on his on his motorized wheelchair controlling his his remote remote control helicopter uh and 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 killing his pilot you know because he's not because he's just a worthless member of his of his staff uh and uh and yeah and then and aging Bond getting out the back seat, climbing around the side, getting resting control of the helicopter, lifting up Fofelt and dropping him down a chimney. Um, After being offered a delicatessen, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Keep your so hair on. There's a, sub, there's a the subtext of this movie is like is, 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 is sorry to the sequences is the McClory thing, right? Have I got that right? I I, I assume so. I assume Isn't it the is. delicatessen actually a direct reference to to, to the, the, the the negotiations about the use of Spectre in the Bond movie? Do I have that right? I mean, have you I, got, is that something that you, you you picked up on? I don't know. I, I, I assume that it's something because it's so incongruous. <laughs> then I, I, I would think that it has to be something to do with that. I mean, it's, it's two middle fingers up. It's it's. Something that's one. I mean, Terry, you're a petty man, as you said, and this is like extreme <laughs> pettiness. It is, it is the, just the kind of pettiness that I can get behind. I mean, <laughs> to spend all that money, go to all that trouble, basically to tell Kevin McClory to fuck off is just <laughs> glorious. It's absolutely glorious. I mean, 
it's you could argue it's not the most responsible way to spend your movie budget that it's perhaps a little bit too personal but to be in that position where you can you know you can you it, it, it is a wonderful thing uh, and i think and i think for bond aficionados who are bought into the 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 background of of these movies it's great for the general public i think it's it leaves a lot to be desired and when of course they wouldn't they wouldn't get that um that sequence is weird because of course it begins with bond visiting his tracy's grave and that should be quite solemn and then within you know minutes later it's all like being played for laughs you know but you know life is so cheap in these bond in these bond films you know that, that you know people move on from death so quickly um and from and from these solemn moments so quickly but it is i mean it, it is a glorious piece of 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 stunt work it should be said that the helicopter sequence in Beckton Gasworks is is absolutely brilliant. Um, but but only if you look at it from a strictly technical, if you take out the the narrative, you know, then then it's a glorious um, pre credit sequence, which is why it's not the worst. The worst is Diamonds Are Forever. Um, yeah, that's the worst but, one. But but the, the, the it's the second worst <laughs> and both of which involve killing Blofeld in rather ludicrous circumstances. But, you know, I mean, if you're supposed to be taking, I suppose you're supposed to be having a second chance of taking revenge for your murdered wife. And he sort of like does it with a, with a, with, with a, with a, you know, a sort of casual shrug and a, Oh, keep your hair on. And, you know, over he goes, it's all, you know, it doesn't strike me as being, um, you know, an appropriate way to deal with uh, the man who, you know, murdered your wife. But, you know, I, I, it's one of those sort of like, it was intended to be uh, just a, a, a hokey jokey thing. Um, but just what you're saying, you go back to that established rule of, of, of a good Bond film that the pre-credit sequence sets the tone for the movie. And if the movie st- sticks with that tone, then it's a good one. And if it doesn't, and this is the thing with 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 Fear Eyes Only is is that this is a movie that's trying to be an austere Fleming style movie, but it has these really hokey action sequences running through it up until the ice the ice hockey fight, up until Luigi gets killed. When Luigi gets killed, the film suddenly becomes all serious all the time, and then after that, its action sequences fall into that line. The a shootout in the Albania docks is brilliant. It's a brilliant action sequence, and as is. Roger's somewhat unconvincing uh, uh, pursuit of Locke and 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 and, and then uh, revenge killing him. That that's revenge killing there, you know. I mean, it, it, it does. This is a movie that does change its tone somewhat at, at, at a certain point in the film, and that's why I think it jars um, in the way that it does. That's one of the reasons why I think it jars. Mm, and also, um, <clears throat> I know that this is something that we talk about all the time, but. I also, I'd be really interested to know what you think on this one in particular, Terry, but I actually find the music a little bit jarring on this one as well. Um, Yes. It's a little bit out of character. Now, it's not like it's not the first Bond film to to deviate a little bit from the established pattern, but I think it's Bill Conti, isn't it? It is, yes. Oscar winning Bill Conti, should be said. It just, I, I don't know, there's just something about it that I always find my rule in my head is if I'm noticing the soundtrack and I'm starting to pay a lot of attention to the soundtrack rather than using the soundtrack to be swept up in it, 
it's probably not a great thing. And I noticed the soundtrack a lot all the way through the film. Yeah, I, I have developed an appreciation of the soundtrack over time. Uh, I think the last time, I think when we did a mu- we did a music episode a, a few years ago, and I said that I developed an appreciation of it in a way that in time Princess Leia would have developed an appreciation of Jabba the Hutt. <laughs> but but it, 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 it the, the disco funk option that they went for in the early part of the film is a big mistake. Um, and 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 it, but it, and it adds to the kind of hokey kind of carry on feeling of the early early part of this of this film. Actually, it, once the, again, the, once the tone of the movie shifts, so does the score. Um, and actually, towards the end, it, there's some there's some very nice bits in there, and 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 it works quite well. And also, Bill Conti evokes the kind of Southern European, Italian, Greek thing. I think quite nicely, and there are some. There are some very nice nice cues in, in in the soundtrack, which which I enjoy. But I mean, I loathe the early stage those those disco funky disco pop kind of uh, uh, cues that he did for the two CV chase and the the pre credit sequence and, and the ski chase in particular just really irritates me. Apart from anything else, he then took the cue one a part of that cue from the ski chase and then just lifted it and then just turned it for a, 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 the theme tune to a 80s TV show a few years later called The Master with Lee Van Cleef it's almost exactly the same the same tune I mean, but I mean Bill Conti he's the guy who did he's done tons of stuff I mean he did Rocky he's the guy who did the soundtrack for Rocky this is the guy who came up with the Rocky theme he is an extremely talented composer but I suspect that probably he was just poorly briefed um, and it, it doesn't, it really doesn't work and it annoys me. And it's one of the things about the film. And um, when I was in my truly obsessive uh, phase of, of Bond fandom, I, I couldn't watch Theor Eyes Only because the soundtrack made me angry. Um, you know, but I'm glad that I got past that three or four weeks ago. <laughs> well, at least you're, you're not trying to drop Bill Conti down the chimney. Which, um, you know, from the sounds of things, might not have been past you a few years ago, or even a few weeks ago. Um, Graham, this is though, like, you know, we we're touching on so much. Just the whole unevenness of the film is is probably its biggest flaw, even if there's a lot to like about it. Yeah, and uh, that must have been a challenge for uh, Conti. In, in that because you, you if you get given a film that's uneven how how do you set a score for it and as Terry said sometimes it goes in and out and and, and I agree with him that the, the sort of the the, the, the wah wah guitar in, in at the beginning of it might not be the, the best one in a, in a funky style much as I like the music of that era it's uh, you know if, if you're going to do that get, get, get something like Herbie Hancock in there and do that for Ooh. it that, that, that would have been great but, Absolutely. but yeah, Con- some of Conti's set soundtracks are some of my favourite films. Um, um, Escape to Victory is one of his as well, isn't it? Uh, so it's, it's. I didn't know that. Is it really? Oh, yeah. Cool. yeah, yeah. Well, let me, let me check. Yeah, yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. It's, it's yeah. fine. I don't, wasn't. No. That wasn't a. That wasn't a. I don't believe you. I genuinely don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Same, same year as well. So, uh, but yeah, that's that's the sort of that. So yeah, that's that's the stuff he he was doing. Karate Kid as well was another one of of his of his uh, of his set soundtracks. Uh, but yeah, it's we always say, say this whenever we get we get someone who who isn't John Barry in. It's it's, it's <laughs> how how it works and. and um, 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 as we've said on on, on recent ones on, on, on recent podcasts, you know, there there, it, it, there is no reason why it, it can't work. It's just 
it sometimes can can take a bit of getting used to. And you say, Gary, if you're noticing it, then it's not good, is it? I think that's mm. that's that that then it's not adding something to the film. It's it it is it's just running alongside the film, isn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah. And and but as yeah. you say, this is this is part of 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 the general rough around the edges in in not a good way uh, feeling of the film. It almost feels to a certain extent like what we've talked about. We we obviously to go back to our, our, our favorite one that has to be discussed all the time of the fact that how brilliant the start is from Die Another Day and then how it just goes downhill very quickly. This one's almost like a reverse Die Another Day in that it starts off a very ropey. It's quite uneven, but then when it really finds its footing, it's there's a lot to like about it. And yeah, like... We, we've also talked a lot, Graham, about the fact that Bond films can sometimes, by the time they get to the end, it's almost like they 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 kind of hit their peak a little bit too early on some films, which which aren't sort of up there with the best. But other than the fact of the demise of, of Christatus, actually, it feels like the ending builds up to a really great climax, one that I... I love, and I just like the, one of my favorite bits of this film is just the very knowing look of General Gogol before he turns back and just gets onto the play onto his helicopter. Yeah, he's brilliant. He's brilliant the way the way that he comes back in, and uh, you know they the the, the the MacGuffin they've been going after in the whole film just like breaks into a thousand pieces, and it's 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 what you should do with 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 a MacGuffin if it's so important that it's, it, it's obviously got to be it, it's got to be something that is like spread around the streets for for for, for people to to grasp hold of or it just goes into somewhere impossible to get and and leaves you leaves the uh, protagonist like rubbing their uh, chin uh yeah uh, no you're right it, 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 i think it's helped by the uh the, you know, the whole the whole rock climbing thing because it, as 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 um you know obvious metaphors for for a, for a journey a concern you know there you've, you've got it right there as a, of a difficult journey it doesn't get much more difficult than that does it and and the 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 the, the, the scenes going up into into the the, the top of the mountain there's St, St. cyril's up there it's a, it's a really nice nice bit there's uh and, and i think it it it, it once it once it's only got that to concentrate on, obviously it's perfect. I don't know if it's anything to do with the fact that it was that the that the film is based on two stories, uh, and the the fact that that of trying to to weave the two in at, at the beginning makes it a bit a little bit more haphazard. Um, maybe it's something to do with that, but I think I think they they, they managed to do that quite 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 seamlessly. Um, but yeah, I think I think you're right. The, the the second half, once 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 it gets into it into its straps, then 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 it's fine. But yeah, once once you've got over some of the more hokey uh, action scenes, which which I'm I'm sure that might have something to do with the fact that obviously John Glenn, the the, the director, was the second unit guy coming into this he was the guy doing all the action scenes so there must have been a bit more of us perhaps a, a, a thought that, that that this is what it's going to be more about more about the, the the action scenes and when you get to quite a sort of pared down story like this one is they're perhaps a little bit more incongruous in this in this mm. instance <clears throat> well there's there's like there is a lot to to like about it the action scenes are, are quite interesting i was actually going back and 
read a few of the reviews from the original um just after it came out so variety and and that lot quite a lot of them are up online and um a lot of them actually praised the action sequences they they said that you know they really the, the praise for the bond film actually came in the chore- choreography the action sequences uh, so it clearly kind of resonated at the time but um for yeah now when you kind of look at it again it's that kind of unevenness of tone that that comes all the way through and a lot of the kind of knowledge that sits behind it and then You've also got some, you know, one of the other things that I kind of pick up on a lot is, um, and Terry, you, you, we kind of have obviously done a, a World Cup of Bond villainry and Christophus doesn't come anywhere near the top. And yet he's a really intriguing character um, and one that almost feels like he, he, as I've mentioned before, he could be in a different Bond film or Bond um, era. And I think he would have potentially worked quite well. And you've got a fantastic henchman in Locke who, you know, you've gone from one silent assassin who is a a giant seven foot, um, you know, terrifying screen presence to one who is actually, if anything, slightly more terrifying when you look at him than Jaws, who is, is a kind of large and life character. This guy is is relentlessly brutal. Yeah, there's no pantomime villainy about Locke at all, is there? He is he is uh, he is a, a, um, a, a henchman conceived in the real world, you know. I mean, an international, an assassin, and a, you know, someone who works for terrorists, you know, a, a, a proper real life bad guy who behaves like a real life bad guy as well. I mean, and is suitably ruthless. I mean, he doesn't have. I mean, you have that. You, I mean, the film has two henchmen, doesn't it? But the less said about the second guy, the better, because <laughs> apart from the fact that we get to see biathlon in the James Bond film, which is a, a magnificent and noble sport. This guy is other. This guy, Eric is just rubbish. I mean, like who throws a motorcycle? Honestly. I mean, ding, 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 ding. But, but I mean, I think Locke is, is, is one of the stronger elements of this, of, the, of this movie and the way that he moves through the film until he meets his, his grisly end. Um, I, I, I think adds real menace to it, and and uh, and he's an excellent. It's a nice touch and a nice sort of like diversion away from like you know we'll have a, the kind of henchman who's somewhat abnormal or strange or deviant in some way uh, physically, you know, um, and, and we instead we have a more like a like a mental deviant. I mean, there's no way he's going to. Uh, hook up with a with a, with a lovely buxom blonde in pigtails and um, and become the good guy by the end of this film, is he? <laughs> no, that, this is about as far away as you can get as possible. And um, yeah, I mean, again, you could probably put him almost in Craig era, and he would fit in perfectly well. He's got that stripped back, just depravity, which doesn't feel wouldn't have felt out of place. You could probably have dropped him as a character into any of the four Craig films and you'd have gone, yeah, this guy's good, which I think is, is probably, you know, just the testament to, to the writing and also the performance. The fact that the guy says nothing at all throughout the entire film. It, or it, Dalton as well. He'd have been good in living daylights, wouldn't he? Yeah. I, I, the, the thing that I, I thought, felt or kept thinking about, about when I, when I, when I saw Locke was, was Vargas from, from Thunderball. Uh, henchman Vargas? Who, yeah, who is <laughs> Vargas does not drink, does not smoke, does not make love. What do you do, Vargas? Sorry. <laughs> but yeah, and you're you're introduced to Vargas, and yet 
Vargas? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that all that happens is he gets pinned to a tree, doesn't he? And that, that's all that happens. I had to put myself on mute because I kept saying <laughs> Vargas. Vargas. <laughs> <laughs> With good calls as well. Uh, but actually, Vargas was played by someone called Locke. So I don't know if they, if, if Jesse is on mute. <laughs> so there, that's, that's, that, that, there it all comes around, one big circle. You, you can unmute yourself now, now Terry. <laughs> Thank you. Vargas? <laughs> what do you do, Vargas? <laughs> See, this is a sign of a poor film. We start talking about other films. Other films. <laughs> Other films. Yeah, <laughs> good point. Good point. <laughs> well, let's just stick with the villain in there because, again, we've got through the, pretty much the whole of um, there, and I've, I've only sort of briefly touched on Julian Glover. Whereas, you know, when we talked previously, we we devoted time to you know Michael Lonsdale and Kurt Jurgens, and you know I think we've all got got a, a lot of love for Yafit Kofo as well. Um, and obviously, Chris Lee. And then you've got poor Julian Glover, who um, Graham feels like he is a he's a brilliant actor. But when you talk about well, I've talked about kind of lifting characters into other Bond films and you could drop Locke in, for example. You kind of feel that this is somebody who is just not in the right place, really, at all. You've got a great actor, you've got a potentially good character, and yet for some reason... There's just a, a lot of there's a lot of undercooking that's been done around there. Yeah, well, I suppose it's the nature of him, really, isn't it? Because you've got to have someone who is a, effectively a double agent. So it, he's he's got to be introduced to be someone who is trustworthy, but then who is slippery enough to 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 actually get away and and actually be carrying on and using um, the uh, uh, the secret services for his own for his own gain. Uh, and so, yeah, he is, I mean, he's basically just a drug smuggler. That's all he is. So it's not as if he's got some larger agenda here or uh, there is something more serious going on. Yes. You've got the background of the, of the, of this, of the, of, of the MacGuffin that, that still needs to be got. Um, but essentially this, this guy is, is. This guy is really no nothing much more than a, than a henchman himself, is he? Really? And when you talk about drug dealers as well, like you have a drug dealer who who is the last of this sort of uh, the John Glenn sequences in Roberto Davi Sanchez, who is a much more compelling villain, um, uh, even though he is just he's a perfectly fine drug dealer, and you know he's probably you know same as uh, you know a lot of the. Uh, a lot of the kind of villains that you could come back to in the um, in that Simpsons episode of, uh, of, of Hank Scorpio, that he <laughs> takes care of his men very, very well. Yeah, which well, he certainly doesn't in this film. <laughs> well, he does. Yeah, I, I think there's there's actually a lot of parallels you can draw between uh, uh, if you get these the uh, Fiora's Only and License to Kill as bookending these the this set of films here the 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 five John Glenn films they. There, there is a lot of similarities between between the first and second one. Obviously, but uh, the the first one and the last one. Obviously, by the time they get to the last one, they've got things a little bit more down. Um, but yeah, I, I, it, it's interesting. It's an interesting little quirk there. Well, they, they gave um, Sanchez a, a, a much, much more ambitious project. Yeah, um, and they gave him a lot more resources as well. 
Um, whereas Christatos is, uh, is, is, yeah, I mean, is is a gangster um, who's got a nice boat and he's got a really, really swanky, re, you know, remote retreat. He doesn't have an underground complex to work with, and he hasn't got a really big project. All he has to do is just basically deliver this sort of like rather probably actually redundant, you know, uh, machine to um, to you know just a, a, another version of the Lecter, I guess to um to the russians i mean a device that actually in the in the beginning of the movie they tried to destroy it and it i mean i suppose it's a, a bit of a puzzle if you really wanted to i mean you know, why on earth would we ever want to pick holes in the story for a movie like for your eyes only frankly but i mean you know if we were and i am um then because see earlier pettiness then i mean why didn't von just destroy the attack the, mo- the attack the moment he, he got it because the most, most straightforward thing to have done would have been to have destroyed it because that was the intention to begin with you know once they hit once the st george hit the mine the idea was to blow up the attack and in what is actually a really horrific scene by yeah. the way that, that oh yeah that is you know them there's just, just some of these just some parts of this movie are just like suddenly very, very real and quite horrific. It's a, it's a, it's, it's really weird. It goes from like comic to being quite dark at times. It's really strange. But I mean, I, I think that Julian Glover is an excellent actor. And I think that if he'd been given a better character, and again, I mean, if we had been further down the John Glenn, Richard May, um, John Glenn, Michael G. Wilson journey, then he would have been a much more interesting and more engaging character. But as I said earlier, I suspect that the idea was, was that there was supposed to be an act of an extra dimension of creepiness with his involving his relationship with, with BB, which never happened really never came across. I mean, it was very obvious to anyone who knows anything about life, what was going on, what, what Christatos his plans were for BB, but what that wasn't necessarily conveyed in the movie. Um, and and I and I and it and you didn't really bring anything to the to to the character, uh, and, and at the in the end he just looked just a bit flat. Um, and you know, I mean, I, the best part I think was probably actually the fight at the very very end between Colombo and 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 Christophe, because that was I mean that was a strangely kind of pathetic fight between two old men who well, they're not old but you know what I mean but older men they were old when I was watching this film the first time <laughs> about my age now but, but I mean it, it all had that that kind of feeling of like two feuding old men who had had enough of each other and were kind of you know sort of like you know it just seemed like two tired old men having this fight. And I actually quite enjoyed that. I, I mean, but I'm not certain that that was the intention of the movie, but that's what I, that's what I took from it anyway. <laughs> Ends up with old men shouts at clouds. A bit like that. A bit like that. <laughs> Top hole comes yeah, out with the code. The sadness of it is they didn't pursue these things. I mean, we didn't see more of that. We don't see enough of, well, one of the reasons why he doesn't work is we don't see enough of Julian Glover. To say, well, Colombo is an amazing, a wonderful character. Don't, not enough screen time, frankly. And 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 although I enjoyed the chemistry, the the, the, the chemistry to a point between Bond and, and and Melina, there was a lot more time with those two. The underwater sequences, which was really really well done, by the way, uh, and also the kill hauling sequence, which is from the Live and Let Die novel. Um, it's a climax of Live and Let Die, which is an interesting. So there's another dimension from from a Fleming novel in that as well. I mean, they are really, really good, but you're right. We, there's, we missed an opportunity, I think, maybe to expand the roles of, of, of Topol and Julian Glover. And, and that would have, I think, served the movie a great deal better. But I think it is worth pointing out that 
I did really enjoy this movie. I watched it twice in a week and I enjoyed it both times. It's, it's, it's a very enjoyable film, but to critically analyze it, I suppose, yeah, it's hard. It's easy to find out where the film is going wrong. Mm, I mean, I'm just on the, the top. I would have loved if they brought Topple back as a recurring character, much like you have Robbie Coltrane's character of, of um, Valentin Zukovsky brought back in time and time again. It would be, <clears throat> yeah, I, he's a character, actually, I would have loved to have seen them somehow work him in to any of the last two. Not that you could see where they would have fitted him in, particularly into, into either Octopussy or A View to a Kill. But yeah, that's just like for the short amount of time he's on screen and introduced, you just go, oh, please, just just give us more. Can we not just get a, a Columbo spin-off? That would be fantastic. Well, if you want to, you could always watch Flash Gordon, which was kind of made the year before, and you know, it's it's not it's not a million miles away, is it? Let's face it. And and of course, it's got it's got a Bond in it as well. It does have Tim Dalton as well. Yeah, indeed, absolutely. So if, if so, you think of Dalton uh, in 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 sort of Prince Baron uh, mode in this film, then you've got a completely different film. I think. I, mean, mm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you know we we talked for a lot, and I think this is. This is where we kind of keep coming back to. Um, and, and Graham, if I'm kind of going to sort of start winding down and, and summing up, I think this is part of the problem that you've got, in essence, what is quite a, a pretty good film, but frustrating because you could see so many elements that could be brought in to make this not just like an enjoyable film, albeit one that probably you forget the day after you've watched it into one that would have been you'd have been like oh my god that's amazing can we watch this again yeah i'm I, while while i've said throughout this that oh if only they'd done this done this done that i'm not sure if if you could ever really elevate this story up into something that is is stands out in in the franchise as as being like one of the high points i think it's always going to be a one of those middle middle ranking films uh, which, which for me is actually an improvement on what I originally thought. I used to, I used to put this aside so much that I thought there must be a reason why I, I'm, I'm not picking this film up. Is it because it's one of the worst films out there? And I think actually going through the, uh, on this podcast, going through films, when, when you see a stinker come, you, you, you do see the stinkers that, that are there. There's no hiding from those. But this one isn't a stinker. There is, there are things about it that could be improved. But I think uh, the, the most thing you, you're going to go from three stars to three and a half stars. I, I, I think, and I, I don't think, it, I don't think the, this has the the bare bones of of a of of a of a four star Bond film. Uh, if you're doing another World Cup of Bond films, I don't think you you the improvements you you could make here are going to make it a quarter finalist. No, Terry, where where do you kind of end up on it? Um, you you are the man who has watched it um, more than either of us in the last uh, seven days, and you know you you've come away enjoying it, like we all have. We've we've all come away with a lot of positive, but then equally, as you say, you know, um, we've we've picked holes and we're not exactly gushing. And yet, where does this kind of sit for you overall within Bond, but also kind of Moore's um, canon? 
Yeah, I don't know. In terms of ranking, I'm not quite certain that I'm ready to sort of like maybe maybe rank it. It is a movie that I've, I appreciate a lot more as a consequence of going through this process uh, now. It, it, is a, it is a coherent film, but it, it is jarring. Um, but, it, but it does have, I mean, if I, I could just probably add some context here. When I saw this at uh, the pictures, I remember I, you know, I was in a full cinema and it was a long time ago, so I don't have vivid memories of it. But I do remember everybody really enjoying this film. I mean, the James Bond movies at that point in its franchise history were fun. They were tremendous fun films to watch. Um, and it, it, it's it, and, and this movie is exactly that. I mean, it tried to, you know, scale things down a bit, tried to make things a little bit more authentic, but it didn't intend to be a gritty sort of like you know you know harsh kind of hard-edged james bond film which they tried when when tim dalton came along this is still very much a nice you know gentle roger moore uh, adventure story and and it, it works abs- absolutely fine it's not as good as the ones before it for various reasons which we've discussed it does have some really absolutely terrible moments in it in fairness such as you know, the pre-credit sequence and almost anything involving BB, and not to mention the absolutely uh, massively now inappropriate uh, um, um, appearance of, of the Prime Minister at the very, very end as well, which is just <laughs> just ghastly. Um, I mean, you could maybe think that there's a degree of soft satire going on there by setting the Prime Minister up to talk to, to setting Margaret Thatcher up to talk to a parrot. But, you know, really, you know, it was 1981. I mean, like we hadn't had the minor strike. We hadn't had the poll tax riots. We hadn't had the poll tax. We hadn't had the sinking of the Belgrano. You know, we hadn't had the, you know, the attempt to to stop the, unific- the reunification of Germany. You know, none of these things had, had happened. And we were, it was a much more innocent film. And everyone thought, oh, look, there's a female prime minister. Let's have a laugh. We've not mentioned the fact that M's not in this movie as well, which is a sad omission, obviously, for obvious reasons. He literally couldn't make it. You know, and that loses out as well. You know, I mean, but there's, 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 there's still nevertheless. I mean, I enjoyed the the scenes in the Q lab. I I thought the sequences, the the, the locations were gorgeous. Greece is a beautiful location. Corfu was lovely. Those street scenes, you know, really nice. And and I loved the Cortina sequences as well. Um, and as I said, biathlon. I mean, there's there's so much so much to really enjoy about this film. But God. Do not elevate it beyond anything more than just, as Graham says, a, a three, three and a half star Roger Moore uh, flick uh, and, and, and just enjoy it for that. And you can't possibly go wrong. Don't take this film seriously. <laughs> I think that's probably good advice across the whole of, of the franchise anyway. But I, I, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's it's kind of nice in a way that we've come into it going like there's frustrations, but we've all come out going, you know what? Actually, if this one was on TV or if I'm flicking through my DVD set, you know what? I would probably be more inclined to pick this out and watch it and knowing that I'm going to enjoy it and I don't have to think or demand too much myself. I'm just going to watch an entertaining film, which, you know, if I don't remember it in two days time, it's not a problem. It serves its purpose. And, you know, people enjoyed it at the cinema. You can enjoy it at home on a DVD um, you can enjoy it if it comes on the TV. You don't need to do much more with it than that. And and it probably wouldn't pay to go into the level of depth that we've gone into it. 
<laughs> we are a James Bond podcast. That is literally <laughs> what we're here to do. Yeah, I think what we might this do is... Is, is give it a different title. We might, we might, might add to, to, just otherwise people are just going to look at the title and think, Fiora's only... No, I don't need to listen to that for an hour. They spent over an hour talking about for your eyes only. (laughs) (laughs) Where's the biathlon podcast I was promised? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, that's something else that we've had on the drawing board for a long time, isn't it, Terry? (laughs) It is a biathlon podcast, but uh, but no, no, no. That was it. This was our biathlon biathlon podcast. Maybe we just need to change the uh, change the Apple um, description for this one. So it's like sports podcast biathlon. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that that kind of just about brings it to an end. And um, we have talked for quite a long time about Fiori's only. And actually, I think you know what we could talk about it a lot more. And I think we'd still probably be sat there quite enjoying it. This is this almost feels like a film. That and a podcast that when we turn it off, it would. It's a shame that we're not all down the pub because we would still have more opinions and thoughts and feelings after it. And it, and it's a film that probably is almost better served the more you've had to drink. <laughs> <laughs> that much is certain. So uh, it just remains for me to say um, thank you again, dear listeners and, and gents. I mean, we've got two more of more to go, and we've got Octopussy next. Oh, we yeah. do. Yes, we do. <laughs> oh, yes. That's going to be a bundle of fun. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, we won't go into to the very big problems, which uh, I think are kind of signposted from a long way off. But uh, suffice to say, uh, obviously, regular listeners know that I have a very soft spot for Octopussy, as I think a lot of other people do as well. Well, um, we we know we know full well your opinions on the on the demise of the British Empire and, and in colonialism in general and and <laughs> we, I should point out that we don't subscribe to them but we know we know we res- in a democracy it's it's healthy to have have these opinions so yeah you 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 go ahead and f- be your best colonial self all you can be in in, in the next episode <laughs> well, well I'm just going to turn up to the podcast eating kedgeri <laughs> don't forget your piss helmet chum. <laughs> I might just read a bit of Rudyard Kipling before we get into it as well. (coughs) And if that hasn't set the scene nicely for where we're going with the next podcast, um, oh dear Lord, let's hope we don't get cancelled. So anyway, um, Graham, thank you as ever. Thank you, Gary. Terry, thank you as ever. No, thank you, Gary and uh, listener thank you and uh, if you've stumbled across it and you haven't watched for your eyes only recently and you've got you know what i'll listen to an hour and so of, of three gentlemen talking about for your eyes only i hope that if you stuck with us to this point you're actually thinking you know what i'll go and watch it because you'll have a rather enjoyable if undemanding evening which in this day and age is all you can ask for the odd job pod will return with octopusy in the meantime please do go on to the socials uh, Odd Job Pod on Twitter, and also we've got a Facebook page as well. Get involved with the conversation if you have any particular strong thoughts and strong feelings, as you've obviously heard. There's many hills that, or there's many mole hills that we would might sustain a minor injury on for this film. At this point, thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of your uh, Bond watching, and we'll be back again with Octopussy and the next entry into the Mall Canon soon. Until then, 
Goodbye. 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 Mr. Bond, uh, uh, uh.